for Brezhnev, the Watergate was something of you know completely incomprehensible. It's like what what is going on? Nixon is such a great person. Now what we have is we have domestic opinion in Russia, which does matter for Putin. You almost wonder, you know, what is diplomacy for anymore? It's like can you even engage in diplomacy anymore? Is it all just sort of Twitter exchange of insults? You sort of worry, you know, you start worrying about where this is going. Listening to the Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And on today's show, we're talking about this week's war of words between Presidents Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. In an interview on March 17th with ABC's George Stephanopoulos, America's new commander in chief made another break with his predecessor by declaring openly that he considers Putin to be a killer. You think he's a killer? Mm hmm. I do. Pretty strong language coming from one powerful head of state addressed to another. Naturally, but how does this rhetoric compare to the rich history of U.S., Russian, and Soviet diplomacy? Is this the worst thing that an American president has ever said publicly about a Russian leader? If so, does that mean the relationship between Moscow and Washington has never been worse? How does it compare to the days when the USA and the USSR used to point thousands of nukes at each other? For answers to these questions, the Naked Pravda turned to Sergei Radchenko a professor of international relations at Cardiff University, where he studies Soviet and Chinese foreign policies, atomic diplomacy, and the history of Cold War crises. Dr. Rajinka told me that things have certainly been worse, but politicians in both Russia and the United States today seem to have lost something that sustained smoother relations in more troubled times. Is killer the worst thing that a sitting U.S. president has ever called a sitting Russian or Soviet leader, you know, like publicly? I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, We'd have to, of course, uh, Russian-American relations or Soviet-American relations go quite a while back and would have to uh, pick up and go through the annals of those relationships to to be sure. But it does seem like a considerable rhetorical escalation compared to uh, anything that certainly I'm aware of. Is there anything that that maybe that isn't as bad, but compares like, I don't know, did... Lincoln ever called the Tsar a scallywag or something? Or <laughs> well, uh, of course we know that Reagan scared uh, the Soviets and annoyed the Soviets by talking about the uh, the Soviet Union being an evil empire and uh, uh, saying in the British Parliament that uh, Marxism-Leninism will uh, be you know sent back to the uh, trash dumpster of history or what was it uh, ash heap of history that that's the word okay but uh, you know beyond that actually i think during the cold war uh, even when relations were quite bad, I, U.S. leaders try to maintain a respectful distance, but respectful uh, approach to the Soviets. Do you think that, uh, I mean, I know, I guess Putin didn't say he's offended, but do you think he is is offended to be called a killer or is is the attention from from Biden just nothing but good news for him? Well, I think it is nothing but good news. I mean, 
Putin thrives on this sort of language. And of course, he's himself known for deploying all sorts of uh, interesting terms uh, in public. Uh, so in, in, in so far as that draws attention to him as uh, as America's great other, you know, the evil antihero, I think he thrives on that. You know, he, he draws a degree of legitimacy from being recognized by Biden, by uh, the American leadership as the bad guy out there, as, uh, you know, Mr. Evil, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, and I think it gives him this sort of domestic boost uh, that uh, that he very much enjoys. One thing, uh, kind of going, looking back at, uh, at, at the history, it seems to me like there's a trend where the longer a Russian leader or Soviet leader holds on to power, the more his relationship seems to deteriorate with with his U.S. counterparts. I mean, because we can see that you know Brezhnev got along with Nixon to some degree, and, and maybe Ford, but then it kind of the relationship starts to s- slip with Carter, and then with Reagan, it's really bad. And then Putin got along with Clinton briefly, and then with Bush, not so bad. Although things kind of fell apart a bit with the Iraq War. But then Obama, things are, re- are terrible. Trump's sort of an aberration, I guess. And now with Biden. Things are worse than ever again. Is that a fair? Is that a, is that a trend that you've all, that that is that you've also seen, or is how how would you explain this? It's just Americans they they get sick of the same guy being in office, or I think I mean it is an interesting interesting parallel that you've drawn here. Yeah, I mean if you look uh, if, if you look for example at Brezhnev, which I think is the most suitable parallel to Putin in terms of their political uh, longevity. Um, Brezhnev did start out like Putin did uh, with this hope of a very close and productive relationship with the uh, with with the American leader, but he underestimated. Uh, the American political context. So for Brezhnev, the Watergate was something of, you know, completely incomprehensible. It's like, what, what is going on? Nixon is such a great person. You know, why are all these strange people attacking him, etc.? So he had a very personal kind of relationship, which he failed to develop with su- subsequent American leaders like Ford, Carter, or never mind Reagan. Um, uh, but what, what, what the Soviet leaders consistently underestimated was the domestic political context. And of course, in the United States, foreign policy is but a reflection of the domestic political context. So uh, Biden was speaking to his domestic audience. He wasn't really speaking to Putin. You know, he doesn't really care that much. He does care about his domestic audience. And so during the Cold War, it was the same thing. In the 1970s, when Brezhnev was trying to improve relations with Nixon, at the same time, Nixon was facing critics who were saying, look, you know, the, 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 we have a sellout here. The Soviets are a threat. Uh, the Soviets are not allowing Jewish immigration or they're, they're uh, suppressing uh, human rights, etc., etc. So uh, because of that domestic backdrop, it was very difficult for a good relationship on the American side to, pr- uh, to, pers- to persist because fundamentally you had, you know, the Soviet Union remained uh, uh, in, I guess, a very different kind of state from from what the Americans found appealing or from what the Americans understood. And the Soviets could never reconcile themselves to this. So I think if you look historically, when you talk about deterioration of relationship over time, it is mainly because it seems, uh, you know, uh, Russian or Moscow's expectations, Soviet expectations then Russian expectations now, are not carried through over time. Uh, because of things that happened domestically in the U.S., those expectations were misplaced to begin with. Does that go both ways at all? Does the in the modern Russian context are there situations where Putin or or Lavrov or some you know uh, representative of the Russian state 
is saying or doing things that are really meant for a domestic audience and the Americans are seeing them, or anybody in the West for that matter, or anybody foreign, let's say, is, is not appreciating the domestic context? Is that, can you- That's a huge difference from the Soviet times because, for example, during the Soviet times, you could have a Soviet leader who was really interested in the close relationship with the United States and who, for that purpose, could override any kind of you know detractors domestically. This was certainly the case with Brezhnev early on when he pursued detente with Nixon. There were people in the Soviet leadership at the time who were saying, well, what? how can you do that? The Americans are waging an evil war in Vietnam. They're imperialists, blah, blah, blah. You're not, you know, you cannot do that. But because Brezhnev didn't care, I mean, he did care, but he had the power to do that and he did not have the domestic audience that he had to really deliver for, he could just basically do anything he wanted. So he pursued a close relationship despite the fact that there was, you know, some sort of, um, uh, despite the fact that uh, he, he could not you know, necessarily agree with everything that Nixon was doing. But now what we have is we have domestic opinion in Russia, which does matter for Putin, whether it's we're talking about political elites or broadly the population now you can say well russia is an authoritarian country how can domestic opinion possibly matter and the answer is well of course it still does because you have domestic opinion polls after all you still have elections of course they're fake you know but still uh, <laughs> nevertheless you still have them which is something you don't really have in the in the soviet context uh, certainly not the same kind of elections so i think putin has to deliver for his domestic what you call that base, you know, <laughs> domestic base of nationalists and, you know, great power activists, etc. Uh, and, and for that uh, reason, he also plays to the domestic audience. You know, now when he uh, responded to those remarks by Biden by saying uh, it takes one to no one. I'm reminded how when we were kids arguing out on the schoolyard, we used to say, hey, look who's talking. That was also something directed to the domestic audience, right? To appear kind of tough, macho to, to his uh, uh, supporters. Is there any history of leaders on either side trying to sidestep their counterpart and speak directly to like the, the masses, I guess? Like, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of any instances where the U.S. president has tried to deliver a speech to say the Russian people I do remember Putin writing an op-ed in the New York Times, you know, a few years ago about the Syrian intervention. And that was, I think, you know, he, he seemed to be addressing maybe the American political elite instead of the president. Or it was certainly meant to be a kind of spectacle. Is there is there a history of those kind of interactions at all? Yeah, I, I mean, historically, we've had that. It was something that the Americans uh, have have tried to do in the past, speaking directly sort of over the head of the leadership to the Soviet people. That became possible during the taunt. Um, there was an interesting episode, of course, with the kitchen debates, uh, which, uh, which a lot of people know about those, that, that, that's, that was when, uh, then Vice President, uh, Richard Nixon turned up in Moscow at the exhibition, American exhibition, and sort of just, you know, went around with Khrushchev and spoke to the microphone, you know, just spoke to the audience, et cetera. Uh, so you had those, those kind of, uh, those kind of instances, uh, in, during the 1970s, when Brezhnev, for example, visited the United States, he was also given an opportunity to address the American people. Uh, and Khrushchev, I believe as well, had, you know, he, he had his speaking tour in 1959 when he toured the country and went to, you know, California. That did not go so well for him. He was really upset because, um, he was sort of heckled and they, you know, people post uh, uncomfortable 
possible questions for him. Uh, but certainly there has been on both sides an effort to speak over the heads of leaders to the, the people on the other side. It's, you know, historically has been the case. Like you said, it's kind of been a hit or miss in terms of success for, for the leaders. Because I'm wondering, like, you know, why don't it doesn't seem like it happens as much these days. And maybe that's just a consequence of the kind of general kind of bad state of the relationship that they're not even visiting each other you know, <laughs> physically, although I guess a lot of people aren't doing that thanks to the pandemic. But is it, an, do, you, do you view it as like a, an opportunity for a good, if, if you're a good speaker, maybe in this sense, you know, Biden's, it's not necessarily his strength because he's kind of prone to gaffes and so on. You're a lion dog faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're. you're... But uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by, go, you know, the, you know, the thing. Do you expect that if, if either side gets a, a kind of smoother talker in office, that that could be something that they would attempt to do again? Or is there kind of more working against it in terms of that being a good policy option? I think we're, we're moving to a slightly different sort of um, uh, context uh, for diplomacy. It's, it's also a bit worrying. You know, we're moving towards a, a much more fluid environment where people communicate by tweet, where you almost don't have the sort of the division that you had in the past between domestic society and uh, uh, and the international, as it were. So it is so much easier now for Biden, you know, to say something to the American journals. Immediately, you have a whole discussion in Russia. This would have been impossible during the Cold War. You know, it was just a completely different kind of context. So that means that today the situation is so much more volatile in the sense that any misstep, any word uh, is, you know, has the opportunity to be misinterpreted and ampl amplified by the social media of different countries trees, etc. And that doesn't just affect the Russian-American relationship. You know, think just yesterday, for example, you had the meeting in Alaska between the Chinese um, foreign minister or uh, two Chinese officials, Yan Jiexue and uh, Wang Yi and uh, Anthony Blinken and uh, Jake Sullivan. And, um, uh, and, and there, it's a very public thing. You know, so how they react on camera, what they say, every word counts and it counts for them in the domestic context. So what does that mean? That means that no misstep is allowed and very limited engagement is allowed. Uh, people have to, you know, present a face of uh, resolve as in, you know, we will rebuff the other side. And this is what Putin also has to do. And this is what in many ways Biden also has to do. So that that's interesting because it, it limits the field for diplomacy. And you almost wonder, you know, what is diplomacy for anymore? It's like, can you even engage in diplomacy anymore? Is it all just sort of uh, Twitter uh, exchange of insults? So you sort of worry, you know, it's, you start worrying about where this is going. As you know, a lot of people in the West now, they essentially advocate what's almost a tantamount to like a war footing against Russia. And, you know, the, the idea that the idea is kind of that negotiations really just are, are not a good idea under any circumstances, even when it comes to arm, arms control, you know, their, their opponents. And, and uh, you know, never mind the fact that, you know, Russia is human rights violator and, you know, Russia is an occupier in, in Crimea and to some extent in eastern Ukraine. And then domestically, you've got, you know, like crackdown and dissent. And, uh, and then in, 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 in Russia, they, it's a lot of the newer, more draconian laws are aimed against foreign intervention and, and they're, you know, they're drafted in the interests of sovereignty, whether it's, you know, internet or education and so on. And so in terms of those tensions, because they seem fairly high, right, in, in terms of kind of the way people kind of stake their 
their politics when it comes to the other country. If you're in Russia, if you're if you're a politician, when you talk about the United States, you 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 use the rhetoric of sovereignty and kind of the the foreign interventions and so on, and that's kind of crept into the American political rhetoric as well. But also, there's a lot of harping on on, on human rights and on international law and so on. How does that? How does the kind of tension of that environment compare to the 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 previous kind of high points of like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the you know the kind of looming nuclear Armageddon of the early '80s? Like, what the Armageddon sounds worse than being mad at each other's human rights violations. So, how did those two stack up, kind of in the long durée? You know, there are two parts to this question. I, I think, first of all, it's, um, uh, you know, today relations are really bad. But if you go back uh, and, and review the history of Soviet-American relations during the Cold War, you do come across moments where it seemed uh, that relationship was much worse than you would think it is today. I mean, today people talk about deep freeze and there's nothing to talk about. And yet at the same time, they talk about each other all the time and there's constant exchange. Uh, whereas you had moments, as you say, in October 1962, where the world was so close to nuclear obliteration that we only now realize just how close it came, you know, within just just a step of uh, somebody launching uh, inadvertently a nuclear weapon and things really hitting the fan. Um, and the same thing, of course, happened in 1983 or the lead up to 1983. There was a fear uh, among the sclerotic you know, aging Soviet leadership that, that, you know, about America, that America was unpredictable. Reagan was uh, doing strange things. He was saying strange things about the Soviet Union and who knows what his real intentions were. And when the Americans uh, started deployment of Pershing missiles in Europe, in Western Europe, which of course was a response to Soviet previous deployments of SS-20s, you know, there was a uh, buildup of uh, uh, of of fear on on both sides, but especially on the Soviet side, and we are fortunate to have avoided a nuclear catastrophe. So, in this regard, having the kind of kindergarten exchanges that we're having today between Biden and Putin is uh, 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 well, mm, it's uh, I guess I guess it's not as bad. Yeah, it's not as bad. But we have to remember that behind these two leaders stand two great military powers with gigantic stocks of nuclear missiles, nuclear weapons of all kinds, and that um, uh, and, and, and that's a dangerous combination. And another thing, and that's the second thing I wanted to mention in this in this connection, is, is uh, the difference between the you know, Cold War and today, and that is the leaders, Soviet leaders and American leaders during the Cold War had a direct experience of the Second World War and uh, recalled just the utter horror of conflict and the the, this, the uh, brutality of war and the millions of victims. And you know, in many instances, like for Khrushchev, for example, Khrushchev lost his son in the Second World War. So, of course, he knew the horrors of war and he was keen to avoid those horrors. And that actually was a major reason why he stepped away from the brink in Cuba in 1962 for all his bravado, for all his macho, etc. He did not want a repetition. The same thing for Brezhnev in, uh, or Andropov. You know, both of them were uh, had been in war and Brezhnev was wounded, etc. So they had an experience. And the same, of course, goes for the Americans. You know, Kennedy himself had been in the Second World War and experienced that firsthand, and many other American leaders as well. This is an experience that today's American leaders and Russian leaders do not share. 
in, in the same sort of way. And that makes you a little bit worried. Item 127, missile suspension released. Item 128, launcher closure door open. Item 129, first stage ignition to missile. How, how genuinely worried are you? Because I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm 38 years old. And when I hear about like nuclear war, I understand that it's a, it's a terrible thing, but it also sounds so un, like unlikely and impossible to me. In fact, I'm, I know it's not. I know it's possible, but it just doesn't. That, there's no visceral feeling to the threat of nuclear war now that the Cold War is over. That's like how that's how I think of it. Do you genuinely think that that this kind of kindergarten, you know, schoolyard kind of stuff is you, it does plot somewhere on a risk threshold or whatever, like it, it leads, it, it's, it, it is a step in the wrong direction. Cause I mean, I intellectually can appreciate that and understand it, but it doesn't resonate with me on an emotional level, but you're, for you, it does. Well, it does because I'm a Cold War historian and all I've studied all my life, you know, are nuclear crises. And what, you know, the most interesting thing about those nuclear crises is how quickly things would spin out of control. And often this was inadvertent. So leaders on one or the other side actually had no intention of coming, uh, you know, of taking things in that direction. And that is the key um, uh, danger, the key threat, I think, for international politics, uh, because of, you know, our knowledge of how many times the world came very close to uh, inadvertent escalation or, uh, just some pure nuclear accident. Um, you know, we know that if you extrapolate this forward, then those kind of events can happen again and history may repeat itself again. And what makes the situation even more dramatic today is, of course, nuclear proliferation and other appearance of other actors, uh, nuclear armed actors, notably, you know, North Korea, of course, you've got India and Pakistan that are uh, uh, also uh, every time something happens on that front, people start getting really worried. Uh, you've got, of course, uh, nuclear or near nuclear powers in Middle East. So all of that is uh, extremely disturbing. And as a nuclear historian and a Cold War historian, I can only say that uh, we have been very fortunate so far. And I don't know how long it will be before our uh, luck runs out. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we dissected this week's hostile, slightly awkward exchange between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, leaning on historical expertise from Sergei Rajinka, a professor of international relations at Cardiff University. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and come back soon.